Wait, how are we, we saying going? it? How Do we, we all say it? welcome? Welcome to Girls Talk Science. Hi, I'm Emma. I'm Kat. I'm Nina. And I'm Maddie. And we're students from the University of Bath. So we're going to talk a little bit about a new molecule which could be used to diagnose and improve the treatment of prostate cancer, potentially down the line. Um, there's so many different types of cancer, and so it's important to have specific treatments that are actually going to improve patient outcome and quality of life. Cancer is a really common disease, and there's over 200 different types currently known. So having therapies that actually target specific types of the cancer are really important. Prostate cancer has been mentioned a lot in the media recently. This is the most common type of male cancer in the UK, with approximately 130 cases a day. Uh, and it now kills more people than breast cancer does. About one in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, so knowing more about what it actually is is quite important. So what is the prostate? The prostate is a small gland in the pelvis that makes semen. Uh, and it starts off in a young male about the size of a walnut and increases to the size of approximately a baseball by the age of around 80. So how does cancer in the prostate gland develop? Cancers are made up of our own cells, and these are the building blocks of our body. However, cancerous cells have become dysfunctional, and they start to grow and divide much faster than they should do. And this is how a group of cancerous cells can form together and form a tumour. Different types of cancer arise from different cells in the body, and the cancers of the same organ often show different features in individual people, which is why they're so difficult to treat. There is a developmental pattern which most cancers tend to follow. At first, the DNA of our cells starts to become damaged, and this can be due to environmental factors, such as smoking, or it could be due to inherited traits or genes, such as the BRCA gene or the Angelina Jolie gene in breast cancer. Damaged DNA can cause mutations in the cells uh, that start to cause them to reproduce uncontrollably. And this growth allows the cells to start to invade and kill healthy tissue, and this can lead to the formation of our tumours. Now, the location of this original tumour defines the type of cancer that a person originally has. So if it starts out in your prostate, it's prostate cancer. Over time, the cells of this primary tumour, so the first tumour that forms, can start to detach and become mobile. And this means that they can be carried around the body by things such as the blood and settle into another part of the body and start to form a new tumour. And this is known as metastasis. Now, particular cancers are likely to metastasize, so move to similar parts in the body. So prostate cancer tends to metastasize or move from the prostate to bones and lymph nodes around the pelvis, and that's quite a common place where we'll find our secondary tumors. These new metastatic tumors are often harder to treat as they have mutated from the original tumors, and this means that they have different characteristics and therefore require different treatment. This means that the survival rates of those people that have metastatic cancer are actually a lot lower than those people who don't and so it's really important for us to try and identify cancer early and try and treat it early before the metastatic stage has been reached. One of the ways that we're trying to detect cancer earlier is by detecting specific biological markers or flags also known as biomarkers that are displayed by cancerous cells. Researchers at the University of Bath and many other research institutes are trying to find a new, more accurate way of detecting these cancer markers so that an individual's cancer type can be diagnosed more accurately and therefore treated more effectively first time round. Treating the cancer earlier with a treatment more likely to work for that individual can greatly increase the chance of survival of patients and decrease their emotional and physical distress. As well as treating cancer earlier to try and increase survival, 
researchers are also trying to treat cancer without resistance occurring. Now, treatment resistance is a big issue in cancer, and it's where a treatment to tackle cancer stops working. An example of one of these treatments, which has become resistant, is hormone therapy. So in cancer, hormones such as testosterone can travel around the body and bind to cells like a key in a lock, and when they're bound, they send signals to these cells to grow, making a tumour bigger. So to treat this, we combat it by trying to reduce the amount of hormone in a patient to try and stop the tumour from growing. However, when hormone resistance occurs, the cancer can still grow despite having reduced hormone levels in the patient. These hormone-independent tumours are more invasive and more likely to spread to other parts of the body. Therefore, if we can prevent treatment resistance, uh, such as hormone independency, from occurring, this would be better for the patient's uh, survival and overall treatment. So we've talked a bit about what prostate cancer is. Uh, now we're joined by Dr. Brian Birch, a senior urologist and honorary associate professor at Southampton, who will be giving us more of an insight into how prostate cancer is currently detected and treated and whether there's room for improvement. So Brian, could you tell us a little bit about your role as a urologist and the process of how a patient actually gets diagnosed with prostate cancer? Yeah, fine, no problem. Um, when it comes to my role as a urologist, I deal a lot with um, prostate disease and urological cancer generally. Um, in terms of prostate cancer, uh, the way that most patients would get to us is that they'd be seeing their GP first. And the reason they see their GP is normally because they're, they've got some urinary symptoms or because they've been reading in the newspapers about celebrities who have prostate cancer and are concerned that this may be something that's affecting them. And so their GP, if they're concerned, will then refer them up to us. Normally by that stage, they've had a PSA blood test, which we may have heard about previously. Um, and certainly if that's a bit high, then they will see us with the question from the GP and the patient saying, do I have prostate cancer? And so they come to us and then we see them in clinic and assess them. And generally that involves talking to them, taking a history, doing a clinical examination, which nearly always will include a rectal exam so we can feel the prostate, um, and then repeating the PSA blood test to see if it's still elevated. What we do after that then very much depends upon the patient that you have in front of you. Um, if they are young and fit and have uh, a life expectancy, if you like, of more than 10 years, then we would probably do more investigations if their PSA on repeat testing remains elevated. And usually the things that we would do would be an MRI scan, and a biopsy of the prostate, which is a relatively invasive procedure, but will tell you the information that you need to know, does this patient have prostate cancer? Mm, yeah. Okay, so um, in your experience, would you consider the currently available diagnostic test to be reliable in detecting prostate cancer? Like, how, how common is it uh, um, to The answer to that is no. I mean, it depends on what role you're thinking about PSA in. Um, as a diagnostic test, it's not particularly good in the sense that there will be people who have a raised PSA who do not have prostate cancer, so that's a false positive, if you like. And then there'll be people with a normal PSA who do have cancer, and that's a false negative. So it can be misleading both ways. And the difficulty is, is then people may 
have to commit to further investigations like the biopsy that I mentioned previously, only to find out that they've gone through the potential risks of biopsy, it's a bit uncomfortable, the risk of infection, and yet they don't have prostate cancer. Yeah. The trouble is, they're still left with having a raised PSA blood test. And the question is, is does that mean anything? Mm. Could it be that the biopsies miss the cancer in their prostate? Do they need more investigations? How's that going to affect my insurance status? Will I be able to get a mortgage and life insurance anymore? It makes it very mm. complicated. Yeah. So how common is it for um, someone with a moderately high PSA to actually develop prostate cancer? What, what, um, what sort yeah, of percentage I mean, it, of people? As, as the PSA level increases, so your chance of getting prostate cancer increases as well, yeah. providing the PSA is accurate. The trouble is, is that PSA is very prostate specific. The difficulty is, is that it does, it's not very condition specific. So it will tell you that there may be something wrong with your prostate. Not definitely, but maybe. The difficulty then is it doesn't tell you what the problem is. So it may be raised just because you've got a big prostate. It may be raised because you've got inflammation in the prostate. It may be raised because you've got infection in the prostate. It may be raised because someone's just had a look in your bladder with a telescope. Mm. It may be raised because you've got prostate cancer. Mm. So there's a number of reasons why it might be raised, mm. only one of which is prostate what cancer. What's the likelihood of the of So cancer once then? the PSA value gets above 10, and if that's accurate and not due to any of the other problems that we mentioned, then your chance of getting it is about 50% mm. if it's above 10. And as the PSA gets higher, so your risk of getting a positive diagnosis is higher. So by the time your PSA is 20, you're very likely to have prostate cancer. Yeah. The difficulty is that most of the people we see have a PSA between 4 and 10, which is a very indeterminate area in terms of trying to come up with a diagnosis. And the chance of having prostate cancer on a raised PSA in that, le in that range is probably only about 20%, something like that. So mm. if you investigate everyone who has a modestly raised PSA like that, four out of five of them will be having investigations that are unnecessary because they don't actually have prostate cancer. Yeah, so I'm aware that um, this can cause some unnecessary anxiety for patients. Does that then lead to further then needing further counselling or further pharmaceuticals to deal with their anxiety? Is that quite a problem? Yeah, I or? mean, it, it, it depends. I mean... One of the problems is that someone has a raised PSA, but they have no diagnosis. I, you have, you've done investigations, but you haven't found they've mm. got prostate cancer. And some people will be concerned that they have prostate cancer, but you just haven't found it yet. Yeah. Um, however, the other tests that we're able to do to try and reassure them that they don't have prostate cancer, like MRI scanning, which has become much better recently, and doing more... Uh, thorough biopsies of the prostate I think can go a long way towards reassuring them that they're okay uh, and that it's just normal some people have a raised PSA either just because they've got an enlarged prostate or because that's normal for them mm, because yeah. when we talk about a normal PSA what we mean is normal for 95% of the population so there'll still be one in 20 of the population whose PSA is not normal but in fact they don't have any problems at all yeah, that's just yeah, the way biochemical and blood tests work mm. but for the patients who you know have prostate cancer and active surveillance really is a strategy that you use for people who you know have got prostate cancer already they've already been diagnosed with prostate cancer but it's low risk disease so you don't think this is the type of prostate cancer 
that uh, requires treatment. And for those patients, you're quite right, it can be um, an anxious time uh, because they know they've got prostate cancer. And generally, when people are told they've got cancer, their immediate reaction is, well, do something about it. Why, why should you know that I've got prostate cancer and then choose to do nothing about it? And the reason is that because prostate cancer has a very long natural history. It can go on for years and years. Uh, and prostate cancer that's low risk can almost be treated like a chronic disease rather than acute illness. And that's generally the philosophy we have now. We look at it as a chronic disease. We manage it as such. We keep a close eye on it. If it should then change, it becomes more aggressive. Then we can pick that up early and we can give them treatment at the right time rather than too early when it's unnecessary. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and do you think there is a need for more reliable diagnostic tests for prostate cancer? Um, what do you think is most required to improve the clinical diagnosis of prostate cancer at the moment? Like, do you think we need better biomarkers for more accurate diagnosis? Uh, I mean, it is very interesting that the whole biomarker thing, because there's um, uh, an article in New Scientist just come out where a guy is talking about the medic over-medicalisation of health. And um, if someone's healthy... You've got to be really sure if you're going to diagnose something that whatever you diagnose and treat is going to actually be good for them because otherwise you're making them unwell unnecessarily. Yeah. And that's often the case because most men with prostate cancer don't have any symptoms, the majority. So it's found just because they have a PSA test. Mm. It, there may be some high-risk groups, people who've got family history of prostate cancer, perhaps they've got female relatives with breast or ovarian cancer, for example, or maybe Afro-Caribbeans have a higher risk. But... Generally, they don't have any symptoms, just have their PSA blood test raised. As we've said, it, that in itself isn't, doesn't have huge sensitivity. So it's, it's not so good at telling you when the disease is there, and it's not so good at telling you when the disease isn't there either. So it, it, either way, it's not a great test. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is, is that we don't really want a biomarker that detects all prostate cancer. And that does sound a bit strange. Why would you want to test that doesn't do that? It sounds, on the face of it, really good. And the reason for that is because there are two types of prostate cancer. You can divide them into sort of tigers and pussycats, really. The pussycats are there. They are prostate cancer, but they're low risk, they're non-aggressive, and they're unlikely to impact you in your lifetime. So you don't really want to detect them because if you do, then you're just worrying about should I have this treated or not? Patients worrying, I've got cancer and they're not doing yeah. anything about it. Yeah. What you really want to do is to detect the tigers, the ones that are aggressive and are going to cause you problems in your lifetime. And so you need a test that can distinguish between those two types of prostate. That's yeah, the course. trick. Mm. So it's not really very helpful um, if celebrities like Bill Turnbull and Stephen Fry go out saying everyone should have a PSA test because that isn't the way to do it. And there's no evidence to suggest that um, PSA testing can do that. Um, there's been a lot of trials, as you might imagine, where people have looked and done screening. They've had populations who've had screening and populations of people who haven't to see if the people who've had PSA tests, do they do better than the people who haven't? Yeah. And generally, all these studies tell us that actually they don't do a lot better. Not improving overall survival. Not no. They may help some aspects of their treatment. So don't get me wrong, I wouldn't say it's a bad test, no. but it has a lot of problems. And as a screening test particularly, it's not great, especially as there's no evidence that it does improve overall survival. And if you're talking to people who are very into 
screening tests for population, they would say that if a test doesn't improve your overall survival, then as a screening test, it's mm. not particularly useful. The problem is that you need very large studies with lots of people to show those sort of small differences. And yeah. that, that's the tricky point. So, yeah, do we need new tests? Absolutely. It would be lovely to have better tests. Something more specific. Yeah. And the, the difficulty is, is that there have been lots and lots of biomarkers around, you know, whether they're involving chemicals in the blood or are, you know, bits of your genetic material. Um, but as to this point in time, none of them have proven any better than PSA particularly, and none of them have proven any better than predicting outcomes than the simple biopsies that we can do of the prostate and look at those under the microscope. That's yeah. the trouble. Yeah. What we really need is a test that will, as I say, distinguish with some certainty between the bad cancers and the good cancers so that you know which ones to treat. Yeah. So how open are clinicians to uh, new diagnostic tests? Oh, we are very open. The difficulty is, is that because of the long natural history of prostate cancer, for example, if a patient is diagnosed with, say, moderate risk prostate cancer, it's not particularly aggressive, it's not particularly uh, non-aggressive, even if they had no treatment at all, the chances of them dying in the next 10 years would be relatively small. Um, and that's not true with a lot of other cancers. So if you get pancreatic cancer, so for example, survivals are fairly low, and it's because it's a very aggressive disease. But because survivals are so long in prostate cancer generally, quality of life becomes a really important issue. It's not good enough just to treat the prostate cancer. You've got to survive with good quality of life. And the problem is all the interventions that we have, whether they're surgery or radiotherapy, have their own effects on quality of life, which can be significant for some people. So... The problem with PSA testing, or a test that detects a lot of prostate cancer, is that you end up with the problem of over-diagnosing the cancers that are never going to cause someone any problems in their lifetime, and over-treatment with all the potential downsides that that got, uh, which that has. For a man, for example, that is loss of erections, um, inability to control their urine or incontinence. So these are particularly significant side effects to think about. Okay, well, thank you very much, Brian. Um, we're now going to go on to talk more about the research at the University of Bath. We've talked about the ways prostate cancer is detected, and now we're going to talk about detection for the future. The research at the University of Bath is actually working with a molecule that may be able to significantly improve current prostate cancer detection and also treatment. The molecule is called AMACR. It's an enzyme that speeds up a reaction called beta-oxidation without being changed in the process. It binds to molecules called fatty acids and remodels them so they are in the correct shape and this allows energy to be produced by all cells in the body. Now we understand a little bit more about what AMACR does, let's talk about why it's exciting to understand in the context of prostate cancer. There's a lot of evidence that too much AMACR is produced by prostate cancer cells and like with PSA, um, with the increased PSA being able to show prostate cancer presence, increased AMACR levels could be tested as a biomarker for prostate cancer. It could also be potentially used as a drug target and as an anti-cancer therapy, and the potential development of drugs to stop AMACR activity is very exciting. The only problem with AMACR as a molecule or a drug target is that the levels or activity have been really difficult to assess up until now. New research taking place at the University of Bath has actually been able to develop an assay to test the activity of the enzyme. 
and we're now going to talk to the leader of this research, Dr Tim Woodman. So we're joined here with uh, Dr Tim Woodman, who's carrying out this research at the University of Bath. So why have you chosen to investigate AMACR in particular? Uh, Hi, well, AMACR is an enzyme that's overexpressed in all prostate cancers. So every prostate cancer has high levels of AMACR, as well as being found in some breast cancer and colon cancers. So the fact that AMACR is present in all prostate cancers made us ask the question, what's it doing? And what can we do with that? How do you think your research could benefit prostate cancer patients? That's, that's a really good question. And I think there's two main ways. One way is that we can use it for diagnosis and diagnosing prostate cancer is always a challenge and is a very useful idea. And secondly, we can use AMACR and its activity as a way of finding new drugs which might be able to treat prostate cancer in the future. Okay, so how would you detect AMACR? How, how do you develop an assay for that? So AMACR is a particularly difficult thing to, to actually assay. Its natural function is to do with chiral molecules and chiral molecules can be thought of like gloves so you have a right hand glove and a left hand glove and they're not very easy to tell apart other than by the fact that they're right and left handed so for molecules AMACR takes one hand and turns it into the other hand and most of the ways we have for looking at molecules don't work very well if we're trying to do that so if we want to see how AMACR is working or how active it is it's very difficult so we probably started doing this work quite a long time ago, about eight or nine years. Right. And to do it initially, we tried something using nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR for so short. what's that? Well, NMR is related to MRI. So many people are familiar with the idea of imaging of human bodies, potentially, in yeah. MRI scanners. Okay. And it uses strong magnets and radio waves to tell us information about molecules. And what we were able to do with our NMR assay was to look at protons, hydrogen atoms, being swapped for deuterium, which is heavy water, effectively. And that gave us a way that we could actually assay how well, how how rapidly AMACR was working. The biggest problem with that was it's not very good. So we got an assay, but it was quite slow. And, for instance, if I wanted to look at ten samples, or six, six or ten samples, you're talking an hour or two to do that. Okay, and obviously so that's a yeah, it's a limiting yeah. factor. How would you go about improving that then to, to make it faster? So to make a better assay, one thing we thought about was can we make something that either gives a colour change or better still, a fluorescence. So colour change is something you can see very easily with your eyes but can also be looked at in a spectrophotometer and a fluorescence test is something which gives a fluorescent response. Okay. So the first thing that we did came about as a bit of a stroke of luck. So we were trying out new molecules with AMACR and one of them actually gave off a fluoride ion. So when it came into contact with AMACR, fluoride was released. So the first thing that we tried to do was to see, well, can we measure how much fluoride is produced? Because that would give us an indication of how active AMACR is. So we went away and we looked at different ways of measuring fluoride. And one of them is to use a fluorescent detector, which lights up when fluoride's about. And we tried this for quite a long time. The biggest problem was the fact that all our water around here has fluoride in it. Ah, that's an issue. It was an issue. So the biggest problem was that we had very low levels of background noise at all times. So after we tried that for a while, we thought, well, fluoride's not really working. 
So we then thought, well, can we get something else to fall off of our molecule which would give us a colour? Okay. And we looked, at, looked around and we chose 2,4-dinitrophenol, 2,4-DMP for short. It's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> the molecule that we made that has it on it is colourless. But when the 2,4-DMP gets released by the action of the yeah. AMACR, it gives a yellow colour. And the yellow colour means we can detect it. We see a colour change from colourless to yellow, which is really, really nice for us. Okay, so we can see the action of AMACR by the release of uh, this molecule to produce a yellow colour. That's exactly right. Okay. So if you imagine two pots, one that has AMACR in and one that doesn't, yeah. one would go yellow, one would stay colourless. gives okay. a very easy way to see the enzyme. Okay, so once you've developed a colour assay, uh, you said you were moving on to a fluorescence assay. How do you go have. about that? We have. So we were really pleased with our, our colour assay because it meant we could go from doing six samples an hour to maybe 96 in an hour. A lot better. Brilliant. But fluorescence is a thousandfold better than colour because of the, the levels of detection you can achieve. So if you can get a fluorescent substrate rather than colour, yeah, that's great. So it's more sensitive. It's more sensitive. Okay. And sensitivity is always the goal. So we effectively then thought, if we can make a coloured molecule fall off, why can't we make a fluorescent molecule fall off? Yeah. Okay. Easy question, hard project. Ah. It took us about a year of trying lots of different things, but eventually we found something that when we expose the molecule that contains the fluorescent part to MACR, it falls off, gives a different fluorescence, and we can now use that. To, to, detect, to detect the activity of AMACR. Okay, so you could add this molecule to a pot that has AMACR in it, and the AMACR would convert the molecule into uh, another molecule, a smaller molecule, and a fluorescent molecule. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. And then we can detect this fluorescence yes, using... Uh, a spectrophotometer, a UV spectrophotometer. Okay. Basically, we, we shine UV light at it, and it glows. So the idea with UV spectrophotometer, you put one light one UV light in and you get a different response out and it's very very sensitive. Oh wow that's great. Okay. okay. Um, so looking at the future implications of your research how do you see this assay being used in the clinic? It's a really good question so the current best test for prostate cancer is PSA yeah. and I gather you've already spoken with a clinician about PSA and how they use it. We have. We would like to produce something better and because AMACR is shown in all prostate cancers. Yeah. We would like to be able to see if we can get a test. Now one way might be to take blood samples and see if we can detect AMACR that's circulating in the body. Okay. And if we could do that, then maybe we could take a blood sample, spin out lots of the, the components that are there and just expose it to, a, to our substrate and see if we get a UV response. Yeah, so this might be better, say, than a biopsy. Which Possibly. Would, so a blood test would be less invasive for the yeah. patient? Yeah, obviously. Okay. Prostate biopsies are, are not pleasant. No. Um, so if you get a blood test, that would be one way that, that we could do it. There are challenges. Yeah. Several of them would include, we don't know how much AMACR is circulating in the bloodstream. Okay. And we also don't necessarily know if it's still active, if it still functions as AMACR, because often proteins that get released from cells are no longer acting as they should do in the cell. Okay, so if you were to do that as a blood test and this this uh, enzyme wasn't active, then you wouldn't get the fluorescence? No, you wouldn't. Okay. So these are questions that we hope to answer in our research going forward. Brilliant. So do you see this being used alongside standard diagnostic tests or as a standalone? 
I think in medicine it's always tricky to replace existing tests. PSA test has been very successful. Yeah. Um, if we could develop something which gives a better test, then I think that's something that we could definitely hope to introduce. One thing I would say is that there is a potential for using this during surgery. So we believe that if we can get our molecule into the prostate, so perhaps you could give it to the patient an hour before surgery, for instance, yeah. if AMACR is present and we get our our drug molecule to it, it may well be that it, the MACR cleaves off our fluorescent component and we could detect that actually in surgery, turn out the lights, get the UV detector on and see if you could see it. And the advantage for that would be that you could actually excise tissue which is giving a fluorescent response, i.e. where the prostate cancer is, and you might be able to spare tissue that's non-malignant and that would have a great benefit for patients. Okay, so that would save the patient having their whole prostate removed if, say, only a certain part of it has cancer? Absolutely. Brilliant. So do you think this assay could provide patients with a more definitive diagnosis? It's really early days to say that. So there's a lot of work to be done on looking at if the assay can be used to detect AMHR in the bloodstream, for instance. Um, and what that also means. So prostate cancer is quite tricky in terms of development. Some people will have prostate cancer when they die other people it can become very aggressive okay. so we don't know the correlation between that and AMACR levels it may well be that very aggressive prostate cancers show a different AMACR response to ones that are benign and if that was the case you might be able to get something but it's really very early days for that kind of, okay. kind of, kind of statement yeah so we're looking at maybe using AMACR to determine the malignant cancers the really vicious ones from the ones that could that would be the hope you could live with yeah I think that would be the hope I think that because I think if you have someone with prostate cancer but it's not developing that fast you say you live with it that's great if you can find that you've got a prostate cancer and needs treatment then you do it straight away okay so it could it could help prostate cancer patients in the it future could be. It could. by uh, determining that that's great so another way of using this assay in your research would be as a drug screening tool? Yeah. Can you explain a bit more about that? that? That's absolutely right. So despite AMACR having been discovered you know, a good number of years ago and having been shown to be so prevalent in prostate cancer, very few drugs have actually been introduced to go against it. Okay. And one of the biggest reasons for that is the difficulty of the assay. Yeah. So you know, we are really one of the, the few people in the world who can actually do this kind of assay. Wow. And drug screening programs often depend on having an assay that's in place because you get candidate drug molecules, you test it against the assay in a lab, yeah. you get hits and you then take those hits through into sort of clinical trials and you go forward. So the fact that there hasn't been an assay until now has made it very, very hard to actually try doing this. So AMACR as well, its role in prostate cancer is not that well defined. The fact that it's present yeah. is something that's important. But what isn't really certain is what it's doing. But we do know one important fact. Late-stage prostate cancer, which is now not treatable with hormones, can be reversed by blocking the action of AMACR. So, so that's a really important study. So that says if you can stop the AMACR functioning, you can take a, an untreatable prostate cancer and make it treatable by standard techniques. So that's a really useful fact. So that means to us there are definitely uh, there's definitely an idea that you can develop drugs which block AMACR and they will help prostate cancer patients. Brilliant. So how could these AMACR inhibitors really benefit 
prostate cancer patients? So this is this is the main thing. So the studies that have shown that AMACR being blocked stops the cancer is only done in the lab. What we actually need to do is get proper drug molecules into clinical trials. So the assay that we've developed has actually already been used. The colorimetric version yeah. has been used to, to take 10,000 random compounds yeah. and throw them at the assay and work out which ones actually inhibit AMACR. And by doing that, we got nine hits out wow. of 10,000. And now these nine hits are potential drugs which haven't been designed by anybody. They're just selected because they work. Yeah. And one, one of our avenues of research is to take those hits and move forward and see if they can actually be used in the treatment of patients. They would block AMACR and hopefully enable it to be treated better with normal, normal treatment. Okay, so how far in the future do you see this being implemented in the clinic? Again, that's a really good question and people always want to know this. So the standard drug discovery pipeline can be anything from 7 to 13 years from the basis of an idea to actually getting a drug. We've got compounds that have already been used in other areas, so potentially they might be more amenable to going through fairly quickly, okay. but you would think that something that we were working on might be six or seven years away from actually being into a patient. Wow. So from your lab through to uh, testing for new drugs and then through that process you can get it into the clinic? It could be, yeah. It okay. could be. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Tim. That's all extremely interesting, and we look forward to hearing more about it in the future. Thank you very much. We've now come to the end of our podcast, so thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it and found it interesting. We'd love to hear what you thought, and we'd be grateful if you could fill out our survey linked in the description below. If you'd like more information about prostate cancer and new research about it, then visit the websites run by Prostate Cancer UK or Cancer Research UK. Universities are really important for carrying out research and we hope that the stuff we've talked about today will be seen out there in the real world. Get on to science!